be found on page 1202 of the Church Bibles, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's page 1202, Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Um, You'll see on the back of the blue sheet the outline of the talk and um, the headings and the title Standing Firm in Our Faith. And if you have it in front of you, that would be a real help. Page 1202, 1202. Have you ever been tempted to give up on God? Have you? In my sermon last week, I talked about how some people gradually drift away from the faith through busyness or the pull of idols, such as success or wealth. Uh, This week, we're looking at something different. We're looking at what the Bible calls unbelief, where someone deliberately and intentionally turns their back on God. The letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were indeed tempted to give up on God. They were facing fierce persecution, and though at the beginning they'd stood firm in what the author describes as a great contest of suffering, such as insult, persecution, the confiscation of their property, and even imprisonment, Hebrews chapter 10, although they'd stood firm in the face of all that, now they were in danger of throwing it all away. Unbelief can be triggered by a number of things. It can happen when we face difficulties, such as financial pressures. It can happen sometimes when a family member is stricken by a serious illness, particularly, as I know, in one case, with the father of a six-year-old boy who died of leukemia. On Monday this week, we heard of the tragic death of Sarah, a young mother who was very much part of our church family, who left behind a husband and three young children. And I have no doubt that some are asking, where is God in all this? How could God let that happen? And the temptation for some again may be to turn their backs on God. The recipients of this letter were, as I said earlier, similarly tempted. How does the writer respond? He does not pull his punches. 
He warns them about the danger of such a situation, but he doesn't leave it there, for he finishes, as we shall see, with a glorious call to approach God's throne and find in him, however difficult the situation, all that we will ever need. Note how chapter 3 begins. Look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. The writer starts with the word, therefore, in view of all his just taught that we looked at last week, chapters 1 and 2, about the victory of Jesus over death and sin, in view of all that, he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. It's how he started the letter with a reminder of Jesus in all his majesty, and it's how he continues all the way through. However tough your life may be, whatever difficulties you face today, don't dwell on them, but fix your thoughts on Jesus. That will put everything in perspective. Having encouraged him to do that, the writer moves on, and this is my first point, to the warning. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." The writer refers to an Old Testament story with which the Jewish believers would have been very familiar. And he uses this story as a basis for his warning. You can read about about it in more detail, Numbers chapters 13 and 14. But here it is. Moses sent a small group of men to explore Canaan, the promised land. They reported back that the land flowed with milk and honey. I think a modern equivalent in my terms would be wine and cheese. But... The inhabitants were powerful, the cities large and fortified. And then the grumbling began because of these apparent difficulties. If only we died in Egypt or in this desert, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? No. Why? Well, of course, their ingratitude and failure to remember the many miracles of God that he'd done for them in rescuing them from a life of slavery under a cruel pharaoh. That's truly shocking, isn't it? How could that be better than God's care for them in the desert? Yes, there are difficulties. Yes, there are challenges. But God is with them, feeding them, looking after them, protecting them. But two of those sent into Canaan, Joshua and Caleb, responded differently. They begged the people to go forward and enter the promised land in spite of the difficulties. The people, however, refused to listen to their wise words. On the contrary, they rebelled against their chosen leaders, Moses and Aaron, and ultimately, they rebelled against God himself. And God vowed that as a result of their rebellion and disbelief in his word, not one of them would enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. And that is exactly what happened. What a tragedy. Now, having reminded them of these events, the writer to the Hebrews now applies it directly to his listeners. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See to it that you don't follow their footsteps. 
Do you see the progression? Sin deceives people into thinking they know better than God. He's wrong, they're right. They then willfully refuse to believe him. Their hearts become hardened to God, and then they turn away from him. And that is why a hard heart, a heart hardened against God, is very dangerous for your soul. And the deceitfulness of sin is a common human experience. Newsnight broadcast an interview with a senior executive soon after the Enron Corporation collapsed in 2001. She described how when she first went to work for this then hugely admired firm, there was a business practice that she'd been taught at business school was wrong. The first time she came across it, she was shocked. The second time, she said to herself, well, if Enron approves, it's probably okay. The third time, she said to herself, everyone here is doing it, why worry? And although the Enron collapse happened some years ago, I'm sure that attitude is not entirely extinct in the city today. Do you see how that executive's heart became hardened to what she knew to be wrong? And have you realized that unbelief is a sin? A sin so great that it can prevent a person entering the Christian's promised land of heaven. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I used to think that belief was something some people had and others didn't. Kind of dropped on you as if from heaven. I know now that belief is a decision. It's a conscious act of the will. You decide you're going to believe God, to take him at his word. Having looked at all you know about God's character, you're not going to allow challenges and difficulties to break your trust in him. You know he cares deeply for you, for the cross tells you that. He allowed his own son, Jesus, to die a terrible death in your place for your sin. It's a bit like love and marriage. You meet someone, you consider from the evidence you have what they're really like, and then you decide you're going to love them for the rest of your life. Real love, as opposed to the euphoric feelings, is a conscious decision, which is why when a bride and groom are asked on their wedding day, they reply, I will take this man to be my husband, I will take this woman to be my wife. We take it for granted that they feel very strongly about this. We don't want to know about their feelings. We don't say, how gushy do you feel? We say, what's your decision? What have you decided? And we warn them, we say, this is a big decision. This is an adult decision. So think very carefully before you say, I will. Now, faith is a conscious decision to believe. Unbelief is the opposite, a settled, firm decision not to believe. And the Israelites consciously refused to believe God about the promised land, despite all the evidence they had in the past of his care for them, let alone the daily demonstrations of his power and trustworthiness. Now, at this point, please note that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Shall I say that again? Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is what you experience when your faith may wobble a bit. And we've all had those moments. To quote Osgiznes, doubt is faith in two minds. Doubt is faith 
in two minds. Back to our passage. Beware of unbelief, says the writer to his listeners, and because we're all vulnerable, he adds, chapter 3, verse 13, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Jack picked that up right at the beginning of the service. I didn't mention it to him. He picked it up. He could see it. You see, it's great to have two or three Christian friends with whom we can be really honest if we feel that our faith is wobbling. That's what we're here for. Over the coffee, you'll say, how is your faith? Is it wobbling? I challenge you, if you know each other well enough. Because we're here to encourage each other. How can we encourage each other if we're not here every Sunday? As often as we can be. The staff at the staff meeting have a rather sad little checklist. Have you seen so-and-so recently? No, we haven't. He used to be there. She used to be here regularly. And we try and chase them up. We send them an email. Send them two emails. Where are you? Because they're vulnerable. You are vulnerable if we don't meet together for encouragement. Mind you, if you left St. Michael's and you felt, oh, I'm very discouraged today, that would be depressing. No, we're here to encourage each other, to pray for one another. Are you facing currently some insurmountable difficulty? So you're real, in real danger of turning away from God. You're saying, this is just too much for me. My boss is impossible. How have I find myself in this job? If you are, take note of this warning in the chapter. Remember God's goodness and faithfulness to you in the past. Don't forget what he has done for you when your prayers have, with God's help, overcome what seemed like mighty, mighty mountains. That's why this is here for us. It's serious if we're tempted to turn our backs on God because God wants to save us from the consequences of unbelief. Secondly, we turn to the promise. Rest is something our society knows very little about. An article in the Financial Times of a few years ago said this, it's barely 6.30 in the morning, already your stress levels are rising. You're late for a breakfast meeting. Your cell phone is ringing. Your pager is beeping. You can see how old this is. You have 35 messages in your inbox and 10 voicemails. Actually, you probably have 100 messages in your inbox and no voicemails because nobody bothers with voicemails anymore. Certainly in my family, they don't. My daughter just never listens to my voicemail. She just says, you rang. And I say, did you hear my voicemail? She said, no. We're too busy. Lewis Carroll, in Through the Looking Glass, comments on our common experience of trying to keep up. His terrifying character, the Red Queen, says to Alice this. Now, here you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to be somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Do you feel like the hamster in a wheel, getting nowhere fast, trying to get somewhere, or as if you're running up a down escalator? It's therefore interesting that God uses the term rest in chapter 4, and he uses it to describe heaven. Look at verse 8 of chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
The point he's making is this. The rest that the people of Israel enjoyed when they entered Canaan with Joshua was only a temporal experience. It was only their experience on earth. The full experience of rest would not come in this life, but later. And God's promise, hear this, is that anyone who turns to Christ is guaranteed entry into that eternal rest that we call heaven. And this eternal rest can only be experienced by faith. Have a look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Not by our own efforts. And the evidence of that faith is the ability to persevere to the end. Chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. This year, some of our senior members have died. Men and women full of faith and I comfort myself because I miss them, that they are at rest. They are in heaven, at home, with our Heavenly Father. And that is a mighty encouragement. But note another warning. Verse 7 of chapter 4, Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The opportunity to enter God's rest will not be there forever. It's an opportunity that should be seized today. Today. Do you regret those opportunities you missed? What's going through your mind? If only I'd spoken to that person, I could have got that job and maybe if I'd said yes to that. No, this is much greater. The Christian's ultimate rest is in heaven. Yes, there is a sense in which we can enjoy the rest of heaven here and now. We can have it all. Jesus talked about it when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. Isn't that amazing? Almighty God is gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for your souls. That is the birthright of every Christian. Christians who are living in that rest are neither frenzied in their activity nor fatigued with doing nothing. They are, to use Gordon MacDonald's phrase, living not as driven people, but as called people. They march to a different drummer. If you are a driven person, are you missing out on the rest and the call of God. And because of that, Christians are not thrown by difficulties or even tragedy. They know that even when we do not understand God's ways, we do know that he is good, because that is God's character. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Other people want to know how that's possible. That is evidenced by the phenomenal search for what is known today as well-being. How can we enjoy well-being? Commentator George Guthrie says this, In a culture which leaves the fragmented, the fragile, the fatigued in its wake, the church has the phenomenal opportunity of pointing people to the ultimate land of promise and spiritual well-being. 
and it's tragic that the thing they're looking for, they're looking for in the wrong place. So we finally come to what I've called the channel. How do we learn about this eternal rest? How do we enter it? Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The Bible is that channel. God's word is not dead, an out-of-date communication from another era. It is living and active. God speaks to people. I think I misquoted it this morning. Uh, A man gave another man a Bible. He'd never read it before. He says, I don't like your book. It kicks me. Is God saying something to you now? Because it can change people's lives forever. It has dynamic power. It is sharp. It penetrates. Nothing and no one can escape its thrust. And he uses a very dramatic picture. It's a military picture. A soldier who has a two-edged sword. He strikes an opponent, and the opponent might survive the downward thrust, but he won't survive the upward thrust. It has two edges. If God decides to speak to you and you're listening, he will speak to you by his word and spirit. And God's word penetrates to the very depths of a person's heart and soul. We can't hide anything from his searching gaze. And therefore it's vital we have regular exposure to God's word through sermons and personal study and in small groups. Incidentally, our sermons are always accessible on the website, so when somebody says, oh, Charles, I'm so sorry, I can't be there for that sermon in your series, I say, it's on the website. And if I remember, I'll say to them the next week, did you hear my sermon on the website? They generally look shifty. But you see, it's vital. And the writer knows that his listeners are discouraged because of the persecution they've experienced. He knows that they are actually in danger of slipping in their faith. It is tough. And bear in mind, we are not persecuted in this country for our faith. Yes, it's difficult. I'm talking about serious persecution. They turn up and confiscate your property. I'm talking about driving you out. I'm talking about Christians being imprisoned and, of course, these days being killed simply for acknowledging Jesus. That's what they were facing. They had good reason to say, I've had enough. But he encourages them. And he knows he's been saying some difficult, perhaps even painful things. So he encourages them not to give up, to hold firmly to the faith, verse 14. And there's something rather sweet here, because he uses a Greek word, to hold firmly, krateo. And it has the idea of grasping or clinging on to someone just as the lame man clung to Peter and John in Acts 3. Do you get hold of it? Hang on! Heal me. Do something. But the writer doesn't just exhort them to hold firmly to the faith. He reminds them, and this is really encouraging, they're not alone. 
because in these last two verses of chapter 4, he sets out some of the most glorious words in all of Scripture. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The writer reminds them that in Jesus they have a high priest who is the one and only mediator between God and, and man and has been tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus, like us, was tempted to, God, to doubt God's power. He was tempted to doubt God's word. He was tempted to doubt God's goodness. And you can read all that in the Gospels uh, during his temptation in the wilderness, Matthew 4 or Luke 4. So, Jesus can really sympathize with our weaknesses and our struggles, especially when we are tempted to give up on God. So the writer says, let us come to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that God will send all the powers of heaven to help us if only we come before him and turn to him. Mercy for the sins we have committed, grace to stand against all that Satan may throw at us. And we need to understand that there is a war on for our souls. This is serious. Satan, whom Jesus described in John 10 as the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, is out to destroy our faith and steal our joy. When tragedy hits, as it does, we can either listen to Satan telling us that God is not good, in spite of all we've known about him, all that we can read about him. Or we can listen to Jesus who promised to give us life in all its fullness. That's what God wants for us. And tragically there are some who in their time of deepest need don't turn towards God to receive all that they need from the God who is compassionate and loving and sympathetic, they turn their backs on him. So what is a tragedy is a double tragedy. But history is also full of the glorious stories of Christians who have clung to God when life seemed at its most dark. Janet Erickson Tauder, the quadriplegic, whom God did not heal, but who has inspired millions through her story of struggle and faith. The story of Betsy Ten Boom, the Dutch woman imprisoned with her whole family and her sister Corrie in a concentration camp because she and her family hid Jews from the Nazis. And it was Betsy who, as she was dying in the camp, said words that I leave with you tonight, words that we could live by. Corrie, if you ever get out of this place, tell them, that however deep the pit, God is deeper still. However deep the pit, God is deeper still. Let us pray. In a moment of quiet, as we listen to God, as we listen to what he is saying to us, 
It may be to recognize that we're in danger of turning our backs on God because things are really tough, or whatever it is. We need to hear the warning. We need to hear the promise, the promise of rest. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I am gentle and humble in heart, says the living God. It may be that we have neglected reading God's word, exposing our lives to God's word. We've become lazy. The most shocking statistic is not that our nation has stopped reading the Bible, but regular churchgoers are not reading the Bible. And therefore we're vulnerable. And God reaches to us in Jesus and reminds us to approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace, God's undeserved love, to help us in our time of need. Heavenly Father, wherever we stand tonight, we pray that indeed we remember those encouraging words to approach you with confidence so that we may receive all that we need at this time. And it may be in a time of need that we may discover afresh how much you care for us, how much you love us, how much you want us to believe in you, to trust in you, no matter what. Amen.